The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Today, we chat about Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan. Last week, City Council approved the plan, and according to the City, the Climate Emergency Action Plan puts Vancouver on track to reduce our carbon pollution by 50% by 2030. However, one component of the plan, the transport pricing component that would see drivers pay fares to drive into the downtown core of the city, was referred back to City staff for further analysis of the plan, the transport pricing component that would see drivers pay fares to drive into the downtown core of the city was referred back to the city staff for further analysis. The Climate Emergency Action Plan is significant because it creates an action plan for the city. It's a list of concrete steps of how we'll meet our climate targets. And this plan is the difference between us just hoping and wishing we reduce our emissions to actually having a clear outline of how we'll do that. And to better understand the plan, I talked to Matt Horn. Matt is the climate policy manager at the city of Vancouver. And Matt told us about what the plan means for lower income Vancouver rights, how the city is helping the downtown east side adapt to climate change, and what this plan means for our climate future. Here's Matt. Matt Horn, what a pleasure to have you on the show today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Matt, let's talk about the Climate Emergency Action Plan. Okay, let's start off with this. How much in greenhouse gases does Vancouver emit now? And what, how much of it will the Climate Emergency Action Plan help us reduce it by? So we currently emit about 2.5 million tons of carbon pollution. Um, and we're trying to cut that in half over the next decade. So we, we think that's an appropriate amount that sort of lines up with the international science, which says we really do need to be dramatically cutting our carbon pollution if we're going to uh, stem the worst impacts of climate change. So two and a half million tons. Can you put it in sort of layman terms or visualize it for folks like me who don't work in climate policy? Yeah, totally. Um, sometimes, I don't know, it's sometimes helpful to think about it in per capita terms. So like if we look at, in a North American context, Vancouver's emissions per person are, are quite low. Like we would be one of the leading cities in a North American context. If you look at it on a global basis, some of the cities in the Scandinavian countries and Northern Europe are a step ahead of where we're at um, and where we'd like to be in the next sort of four or five years. Uh, it just gives you a sense of, sort of where we would fall in that global picture. And I wanted to ask, Matt, because a lot of the debate around this has been, oh, it's going to be so painful to implement a, the number of, a number of these measures. It's going to cost us so much. We've heard a lot about transport pricing and how a lot of people opposed it. And I wanted to ask, just looking at the framework of this plan, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it started, we started off with looking at how much we could mitigate these emissions by. I'm wondering if there's a way to look at it from a benefit focus point of view how can we benefit the life of vancouver rights or at the same time reducing emissions um maybe easier said than done yeah that's a good question like i so i i think it's where there's been some anxiety and some concern around the plan like it's um i think it, it's coming from a reasonable place like there's some difficult changes i think we have ahead and it's important to acknowledge that and do what we can do as a city to support people in making those changes um the modeling we did for the this plan sort of looks at um, what can be achieved over that next 10-year period. And we 
from a financial perspective, we do see benefits. So there's there's costs associated with things like heat pumps and electric vehicles, um, but there's also pretty significant energy savings. Like if you're able to take uh, walking, transit, cycling more, uh, more efficient buildings, those all save us money over long term. So we're we're seeing about a billion dollars in net benefit from this plan. Um, there's also a host of other benefits that come with taking this action. So first, we again we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change and all the costs those have for the city in terms of sea level rise and extreme heat events. Um, we also get better air quality, both indoors and outdoors. We get a quieter city. There's a whole bunch of sort of, I think, um, reasons that uh, other benefits associated with this plan that we can realize over the next decade. And so help me here while talking about, while we're on the train of thought about benefits, uh, as I think about the neighborhood, the downtown east side, I think what, what are residents most concerned about? We're concerned about things like extreme heat uh, events or extreme cold events or maybe not having as much access to drinking water as residents would like. So is there anything in this plan that will help residents of the neighborhood adapt to the worst effects of climate change? So this this plan is focused very much on reducing our carbon pollution or mitigation as it's often referred to. Uh, The city also has a climate adaptation strategy that was uh, recently updated and approved by council. And that, um, that deals with the, I guess, the unfortunate fact that we have we've waited too long collectively as society on the problem of climate change and there are a number of impacts that are happening now and more that are already sort of baked into the system um and one of the real like significant challenges with climate change is it's it's a global impact and it doesn't impact equally around the globe and the same would be true within vancouver different people are going to experience those impacts more severely and uh you mentioned extreme heat is a really good example and one of the, the ways we can mitigate that is with sort of more uh, more tree canopy and sort of more shading in the city and uh, the downtown east side is one of the hot spots in the city that does not have good tree canopy um, so um, the, the climate adaptation strategy again which council did approve the updated version of um, includes a number of measures on those fronts so planting more trees around the city particularly in those hot spot neighborhoods um, uh, uh, cooling zones and sort of uh, shading uh, sorry um, in in, sorry, when we have smoke events in the summer from wildfires, uh, having access uh, to indoor, safe indoor environments is also important. So there's sort of been work done on that to sort of allow that to happen more in summers going forward. Um, so those are the types of investments we're, we're trying to make as a city. There's a, a lot more we're going to need to do to be successful on that front, but those, those are laid out in the adaptation strategy. And maybe you won't have these specific details with you on hand, Matt, but I'm curious if you have, if you know about this, a little more about the specifics, things like if they're going to be increased to access points to drinking water in the neighborhood, for example, and when we're talking about increased tree covers or planting more trees in the neighborhood, when that could happen, so the next two years, next five years, yeah, it's a totally fair question. So it's just it's not my specific area of responsibility. So I, I wouldn't want to try to guess at those specifics. We'd be happy to follow up and could arrange a conversation with one of my colleagues who deals with that in more more detail if you'd like to have a more detailed conversation on it. Okay, and so I'll bother someone else with those questions. But maybe let's go back to the Climate Emergency Action Plan. Um, I know there were five big moves uh, described in the plan. Matt, could you give us a, a brief rundown of those? Yeah, so uh, the six actually uh, big moves or objectives that council approved, um, and that's sort of it's trying to frame the yeah the objectives we're working towards with this climate emergency work. Uh, so the first is uh, more complete and walkable communities again, so that if we design our city better, so that walking, cycling, and transit is a 
more viable option that it, it's just it's that much easier to not rely on a car or a vehicle. The second is around improved uh, walking, cycling, and transit networks so that more people can choose um, walking, cycling, and transit. Uh, the third is around electric vehicles and accelerating the transition to zero emission vehicles in the city so that where people uh, do need to use cars and trucks that uh, they aren't polluting our, our air. Um, the fourth is focused on buildings and it's transitioning to uh, renewable energy sources for space and water heating, which is sort of a, uh, the biggest source of carbon pollution in Vancouver comes from our buildings, particularly for space and hot water heating. Uh, the fifth is focused on um, the construction materials used in new buildings. So uh, transitioning to lower carbon construction materials. So things like you can use a lower carbon blend of concrete, you could use more natural materials like wood, um, building a building with less parking would be another way to sort of cut down on the embodied carbon in a new building. Um, and the, the last one is around restored coasts and forests, and it's a recognition... Embodied carbon, what do we mean by that? Yeah, good question. Um, so most of the climate plans focus on what's called the operational carbon or operational emissions. And when we burn fossil fuels, those release carbon emissions, which contributes to climate change. Um, if we think of the, the building materials or construction materials we use, um, they often will take uh, release carbon when they're created. So the cement kilns in Richmond, for example, that's where we get most of our cement for our concrete. Um, there's emissions released when that cement is created. Um, and so we also want to use lower carbon or lower embodied carbon materials. So we reduce some of those emissions as well. Thank you. And you were, I, before I cut you off, you're going to tell us about the next move. Yeah, the last one, uh, the big move six, is around restored coasts and forests. And it's a one of the things the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change focused on in their significant 2018 report around 1.5 degrees and how we can sort of limit warming to 1.5 degrees is the need to figure out negative emissions. And we, we're going to have to start sort of um, essentially sort of pulling uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere if we're going to uh, limit warming to that degree. Um, so the, the role we think we can help with that from a city perspective um, is through restored coasts and forests. Those become healthier ecosystems and they can sort of pull more carbon out of the air naturally. Let's talk about um, something that's been in the news a lot, the parking permits. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a, seen a lot of concern both in the media and in my social circle about folks saying, what, now I have to pay for parking to park in front of my house? And folks are very um, indignant about that. But I think there's a point to be clarified here that not everyone is going to be paying for parking spaces in front of the city. And I think the idea was to really ask folks who have a little more resources, financial resources, a little well off to pay. Can you clarify for us, Matt, if I have, say, if I'm a working class person living in the Killarney neighborhood, driving a 2001 Toyota Corolla, would I be paying for a parking permit? Yeah, so I can, I'll explain sort of what we've proposed to council and what they've asked us to move forward with. Um, and the one caveat I would put in front of this as well, there's we've committed to council there will be sort of more more engagement in 2021 around this. So um, there's an opportunity to sort of work on the details. Um, so right now, about 10 percent of uh, residential streets in the city have parking permits of some kind. We are proposing to move that uh, to a citywide basis. So if you're parking in front of, uh, of your house um, overnight, uh, you'd be required to have a, a residential parking permit. Um, what we said to council and the climate emergency action plan is that permit rate would be very low. Um, and so I can, the neighborhoods where we do have them right now, they sort of are in sort of 
30 to $50 a year, so the range those are at. Um, I think one thing we will need to do is uh, do some more research, like is there a need for a low income exemption as part of that, even that low base permit? And that's something we're open to exploring. Um, the West End permits, for example, where the price is higher, uh, they do have a low income rate uh, built into that system. Um, the, the other piece of the uh, what we're proposing, and this is really focused on that accelerating the transition to zero emission vehicles, um, is we're proposing a carbon pollution surcharge on those permits, but only for new, more expensive vehicles. So if someone's buying um, a post-2022 vehicle and it's uh, uh, more than forty or $50,000, and it's a gas or diesel vehicle, there'd be a surcharge on that permit. Um, if they're uh, driving an older vehicle, purchasing a lower-cost vehicle, or purchasing an electric vehicle, all those would not have the surcharge associated with them. So we're, we're trying to focus that incentive where the people where people have the means to buy a more expensive new vehicle. Okay, so to be clear, everyone is paying a parking permit charge and some the folks who are low income will get some sort of subsidy possibly on that. And the folks who are buying newer vehicles, gas-driven vehicles are paying a surcharge. So they're paying more for that parking permit, but everyone is going to be paying some sort of base charge. Um, so I think that the everyone, I think, is really one of the key questions we will have to wrestle with in 2021. And should there be a like a, a, a lower or a zero rate for low-income residents? And that's something we're open to. We haven't made any decisions at all at this point. Okay, sounds good. And in terms of how much the ballpark, what that per- parking permit could look like, you mentioned the number $30 to $50 right now is the current going rate that's currently instituted in portions of the city where they have parking permits now. So it sounds like those details aren't quite worked out yet, but are we thinking that $30 to $50 is sort of the range that we're expecting to see rolled out in the city? Yeah, I think the only place in the city they're higher is in the West End. And the reason they're higher in the West End is because demand for on-street parking is much higher than anywhere else in the city. Um, we also did work in advance of bringing that system in. And there's there's a whole bunch of uh, underutilized off-street parking that we wanted people to use instead of uh, parking on the street. Um, but that's the only place in the city where they're higher than that, sort of 30 to $50 a year. Let's talk a little bit about transport pricing, Matt. I think that's been the most controversial sure. piece um, of the plan. Um, could you d- just briefly describe for us what the, the what that recommendation from staff to city council was and what city council's decision on that um, has been? Yeah, so you're definitely right. It's, it has taken up the most oxygen in terms of being the, the most controversial. Um, so what we had recommended was that um, we would work towards implementing a transport pricing system in the metro core by 2025. Um, so transport pricing, sometimes referred to mobility pricing or congestion pricing, is a charge for uh, people driving in, uh, in vehicles to encourage them to shift to walking, cycling, or transit. Um, the reason we had proposed 2025, which is sort of a relatively sort of long ramp towards implementation, uh, it would allow us to do sort of a more detailed engagement and analysis and figure out a, a number of tough questions that people have rightly raised concerns around. Um, it would also give us time to improve walking, cycling, and transit options. So those are more viable and safer options for more people. Um, so that's a, the, the basic system we proposed. A whole bunch of details would need to be figured out. And that's what we were essentially testing if council wanted us to move forward with that work plan to figure those out. Um, so concerns were raised uh, by the business community, what this might mean for sort of people traveling downtown for um, uh, for retail. 
um, concerns were raised uh, for uh, commuters in terms of is this fair in terms of the impact on commuters. And I think we also heard pretty clear sort of potential impacts on uh, low income residents that uh, need to drive for one reason or another. And would this be fair from that perspective? Um, so we, we did not have answers to those in the plan and we I would fully agree with those concerns. And I think if, if we don't have uh, effective answers to them, it's not something that I would imagine council is likely to approve. Um, in their discussion around it, I think council pretty clearly heard those concerns. Um, what um, they've still asked us to be ready to be implement uh, to be able to implement a system by 2025. Um, so they they're asking for that work to proceed. Um, they have really emphasized the need for robust engagement, um, particularly around the downtown community and disproportionately impacted communities and um, making sure we're understanding those concerns and figuring out ways of addressing them. Um, and they want to hear back on that engagement uh, at some point in 2022 to decide if they want to continue moving forward with a proposal with, a, with transport pricing or not in Vancouver. 2022, they want to hear back and then, and that the idea would still be to implement, if they give the go ahead, the idea would still to be to implement that transport pricing by 2025. Uh, that's the plan we're working for at the moment, yeah. So I think it's, it's possible that could change between now and 2022, but that's what the, the direction they've given us to and we'll engage around that sort of general concept. Right. 2022 is still two years from now and it's the year of the municipal election, very conveniently for council, but you don't have to comment on that. I would love to hear your thoughts, Matt, about um, going back to parking permits. I've heard a lot of concern from folks too who drive in from the city, from sorry, from outside the city into the city to work. So for example, they're there are lower income folks driving out from Burnaby or Surrey or wherever because housing is cheaper than driving into Vancouver to work and then go home. How would parking permits, um, how would parking permits potentially affect, affect them? So there are some parts of the city um, that already have restrictions for um, sort of visitor parking, like around the hospitals, for example. We're not proposing any of those would be changed as part of this. In terms of the new permits we're bringing in, uh, our thinking is the focus would be on overnight parking. So if you're coming in to visit for the day, um, it, it wouldn't apply. Um, because of sort of a, the, the functionality within um, uh, the parking uh, parking permit system, if someone did want to come and visit, park overnight for whatever reason, uh, we'd also have options built into that where you could have just sort of a, a day permit purchased or if someone was doing work in an area for a week and needed a, a short-term permit, that would also be possible. And maybe for my second last question, Matt, um, I know there has been a lot of concern around, or at least some concern of, around rental evictions. So if building managers are upgrading their furnaces or upgrading different parts of the building to make them energy efficient as per the code laid out in the plan, maybe their low-income tenants may be kicked out in order, in order for those renovations to, be, to take place and maybe they won't ever find tenancy back in that building again. What was staff thinking about then? around that yeah so the um one of the policies we've recommended that council has asked us to move forward with is this idea of carbon pollution limits for existing buildings um in the earlier engagement around this plan sort of earlier this year we heard quite clearly um well through the climate and equity working group which is a, a group that was established as part of this process um a lot of concerns about that type of approach potentially exacerbating risks around renovations um, so what we proposed and what, what council agreed with was that those carbon pollution limits um, would focus on large commercial buildings and detached housing. Um, and so that would be um, 
where that those approaches uh, would apply. Um, for rental and non-market buildings, the carbon pollution limits would not apply. We'd be focusing more on incentives and support tools to help those buildings um, make improvements and make retrofits. Uh, I think one of the things we've also really been focused on is how you can reduce carbon pollution in these buildings without having um, uh, to displace uh, residents. And there are a number of uh, opportunities where that uh, can happen. So we think there's sort of a pathway forward where we can be providing those incentives in a way that doesn't exacerbate those risks. Right. So supports and incentives more for the nonprofit and rental buildings and more enforcement mechanisms for privately owned or detached or semi-detached houses. Um, sorry, the one correction there, I think for the for the commercial buildings and the private detached, there would still be supporting tools and there would still be incentives. They would just have that requirement in place that they have to reduce emissions over time. And just quickly about the last step, the last big move, the coast and forest, I don't think that was addressed in the plan this time around. Can you speak briefly about when we'll discuss that step? Yeah. So uh, when council approved those objectives in April 2019, they asked us to report back on implementation plans um, by this time this year. Um, so we had, we had hoped to have all of those in the Climate Emergency Action Plan. We just weren't able to advance the work on the restored coasts and forests as quickly as we'd hoped. So uh, Council agreed to a revised timeline and that. So we'll be reporting back next year um, on a, a target for that work and an initial work plan. Some of the pilots would be interested in exploring as well. My very last question, Matt, does this plan give you hope? When you look at what has been approved by council, do you look at this and say, this is a success? I think for where we're at in the process, I would characterize it as a success. Um, council asked us for sort of the, the roadmap to our targets, and I, I think we provided that in a, in a good amount of detail. Um, where we've got, the, the other part I would characterize as a success is we've had tons of interest and reaction from colleagues and BC, across Canada and around the world, really interested in what Vancouver is proposing here. So I think one of the reasons um, we're motivated to do this work in Vancouver is that uh, we can learn from others that are leading the charge and we can sort of share our, our challenges and successes as well. So it's not it's not just our two and a half million tons in Vancouver. It's sort of this ability for sort of a spillover effect in a good way into other jurisdictions. Um, the challenging part, and I think your, your questions are totally fair in highlighting this, is there is a fair bit of anxiety around what some of these changes will mean. I think we've got a, a lot of details to work through in 2021 um, to get these back to council and um, in, the, in the detailed format, uh, addressing those concerns in a way that allows us to move forward with implementation. So um, I wouldn't have expected to have those all solved at this point, um, but there are definitely challenges out there for us to work through. Thanks, Matt. I think, And I think what I was getting at too was is this a point at which I can have hope for the climate crisis that we might actually solve it? I think what I'm maybe this is an unfair position for you and Matt. I'm sort of looking at you and hoping for a little bit of hope here. Yeah, so I've like I've been working on climate change since the early 2000s, and I I think one of one of the, my big criticisms of uh, policy at the city, provincial, and national level in Canada is that we will often have sort of grand objectives and very little substance explaining how we're going to get there. Um, I think one of the things we really pushed for at a staff level with this plan is to lay out the pathways to how we would get to those targets. Um, so the targets themselves are not, are not new or particularly ambitious, uh, particularly um, 
uh, ambitious relative to what Vancouver or other jurisdictions in Canada have set in the past. But the part that gives me, I think, a good amount of hope, and I, I hope it gives other people hope, is that we put forward a pathway that gets to those targets. And again, details to work through, but I think it's, I would take this as a fairly eyes wide open approval by council. It's not just a, a target without any details as to what involved in getting there. Um, but we've laid it in quite a bit of detail what we think needs to happen and when that needs to happen. Matt, thank you very much for your time today and for your work. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. And that was Matt Horn, the climate policy manager at the City of Vancouver. Matt described Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan and what it means for lower-income Vancouver rights. And that's it for today. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, your super local morning news show here on Vancouver Corp Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy, and as always, please tell us what you think of the show. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Ciao. Take care. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.